Want to know more about what your favorite ninjas have on their minds? Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's a great listen for any Ninja Warrior fan. Welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani, and today's episode is in two parts. Part one, um, we revisit the Champions League final from the year 2000, where Real Madrid beat Valencia 3-0. Myself, Eduardo Alvarez, and Matt Wiltsey, we, we re-watched it this morning uh, and last night and uh, took notes on it, and uh, this is our historical segment. So we try to do this every Thursday. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's like fireworks. It's so much fun to revisit um, old Real Madrid games. And then part two, we have a bunch of questions that came in from Maridistas and patrons, so... Uh, Lucas Navarrete and I go through that. So stick around after part one for part two, where we discuss more relevant Real Madrid things like um, who's going to start against Levante, some of the injury updates, um, and other questions about contracts and some of the team's systemic issues and whatnot. Um, before we get underway, we do have to plug a couple th- just big things that happen. So if you go on managingmadrid.com, um, you'll see a couple of things that stand out. One is I interviewed Julian Draxler and Felix Magath, two of Raul's former colleagues at Schalke, for a story about Raul um, and kind of his the way he left Real Madrid and, and his legacy at Schalke. Really fun to, to work on this one. And what stood out was that Draxler was super excited to do this interview because he loves Raul. And so his friendship with Raul was one of these kind of unexpected things that came out of the story. And um, there's a few things that I didn't include in the piece, but I posted on my Twitter quotes that um, that kind of stand out. So go check that out. And also the School of Real Madrid, we put out a video about some tactical terms. So often you hear about, you hear some tactical jargon in football writing, which um, not necessarily a bad thing, but we went and simplified those terms so you can understand what they mean um, when you're reading those articles, just so it makes it a little bit easier for you. Um, all right, this is the Managing Madrid podcast. Let's get underway. Here's part one. Let's go. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. So we bet the man needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast, the much-anticipated historical segment where we are about to break down Real Madrid's eighth Champions League title, which they lifted in Paris in 2000 against a Valencia team that were the favorites. And joining me to do this um, is Ed Alvarez, who's been watching Real Madrid games since 1865. Ed, how you doing? Um, I'm very well. Thank you. And also joining us is young pup Matt Wilty. Matt, how are you doing? <laughs> doing good, Kian. Doing good. Uh, Eduardo, I, I don't, were you at this one? Did you travel w- with the team to where you were doing the, you, you were at this game? I was living in Israel and, uh, the day, I, I didn't think I was going and the day before the match, a friend called me that he had a ticket and, uh, this was when, when the matches were played, uh, midweek on a Wednesday. So had I been in Madrid, it would have been almost impossible to get a flight to Paris Mm. But because I was in Israel, uh, I mean, there were plenty of flights to, to, from Israel, from from uh, Tel Aviv to to Paris. So I, I just couldn't believe I was there. 
it took like 10 minutes. Uh, I had the ticket. I bought the the plane ticket, and the following morning I was in Paris. I, I, unbelievable. Wow. What was the atmosphere was like? Because I've I've heard mixed things from Champions League finals because it's there's a lot of people who just kind of fill the seats, and then there's both sets of fans. What was the atmosphere like? Mm, this could be more the case right now, but back then it was it was a Spanish final, so it was kind of like a huge party. Everyone, I mean, we. We Spaniards took over Paris, and everyone was celebrating in the street. It was like a gift, pretty much. Can you um, give us context of this game? What should the listener know about before we start talking about the game itself? Well, on a couple of words on the Valencia side, uh, it was a extremely physical, very very tough side with uh, unbelievably fast forwards um claudio lopez ilie angulo and uh, they did very well for that for that three four year period and they reached the final again the following year against bayern munich um it wasn't a pretty team to watch but it was a lot of fun um, and uh, especially claudio lopez for instance he drove barcelona nuts he scored yeah. two three goals every time he faced Barcelona he was so fast that Ronald Koeman could ever and uh, Real Madrid was in a very weird transition phase uh, we'll talk about the lineup but it's the most bizarre lineup I've ever seen and and the substitutions are like a joke uh, yeah and, it's uh, true he, he, I mean the Bosque ends up playing with five center backs it's, it, it's just crazy but for I don't know. The chemistry was good. They they got along with each other, and uh, it ended up being a, a very success, successful team. Even though it wasn't, this was like the pre-Galactico era. So the lineup. So this is. We should just go over the lineup because it. You're you're completely right. It is it is a complete ridiculous lineup. So there's five at the back. So Helguera is this, essentially the sweeper, and the five at the back are Helguera as the as the sweeper. Ivan Campo. Aitor Karanka, beside him, Salgado and Roberto Carlos, the fullbacks. There is only one central midfielder in this team, and it's Fernando Redondo. So it's essentially like a 5-3-2, um, but it's Redondo, and then the two central midfielders beside him are Raul and McManaman, and then you have Anelka Morientes up top. So in this team, you have two number nines, one central midfielder, one forward, one winger, three central defenders, two wingbacks, and... I, I got to tell you, I, I when, when I watched it, it felt like if this if you put this team in a time machine and just put them on a football pitch now, I don't I think they would be, I think they would they would be kind of demoralized by the end of it. I don't know what would happen to them. I I, I worry uh, for them. I don't know. I I, I kind of like the way uh, they played together, even though it it looked disjointed, but. And I would say that it was almost a, a five-two-three because McManaman played everywhere on the pitch and and helped Redondo a bit. And uh, the back three were really good. Uh, I mean, neither of them was uh, a memorable centre back, but they the three together. I mean, uh, Valencia could hardly have a shot in goal for for the full match. They were. Every cover was perfect among the three. It's, it's, it's just uh, 
And then the fullbacks, you you forget how good they, they were because yeah. they keep going back and forth for, for the full match. They cover so much ground. So even if it looks kind of dis- dysfunctional, when you see it on the pitch, and again, against a, a pretty tough side, very physical side, they they did they did well. It did work. Um, I also, Matt, I want to get your thoughts on the tactical side of things. I When I was, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, because in the intro in the show, I said Valencia were favorites in this game. I think they were, right? This is just from what I remember when I was watching this when I was younger. And the only, I wouldn't have had much confidence in going into this game, apart from the fact that um, they played so well against Manchester and Bayern Munich leading up to it. Other, other than that, I really felt like Valencia was the favorite in this game, weren't they? I mean, I don't think Valencia is ever a favorite against Real Madrid. <laughs> I suppose it was just more of the context of the season, though. Like they, they seemed they were better know, domestically. I yeah, um, I know, but it, it it was a more conservative side. Uh, they depended a lot on on the forwards for scoring. Like the rest of the team, maybe Mendieta, but there was there was no other threat. And Real Madrid, just on the pitch again. A very weird side, but you, I mean, Raul, Morientes, and Anelka could all score at any point. And then another thing with the with the centre back trio, every every set piece was a chance of scoring because you had three excellent headers of the ball, plus the usual ta- attackers. So I don't know. The, this team had her had their weapons. Yeah, it had a lot of individual brilliance, I think, and and some legends in their peaks for sure. Um, Matt, what was your thought when you saw the lineup, and then and then kind of how you saw it unfold? What, what yeah, you, so you know? I, I mean, I was shocked at the five three two, um, or like Ed said, almost a five two three. And uh, Ed, was that typical? Like, is that the is that the formation they played all season long? Um. Yes, uh, from like mid-season onwards, um, Del Bosque decided that it was kind of too risky the way he was playing with four at the back. And then then he started playing with Caranca, uh, Elgera and Campo. And then, I don't know, things worked. Uh, he used this, this is a bit, a bit like the false nine with the Spanish national team. He did the same thing. He used it in one match and suddenly then they did it the following season immediately. Okay, yeah, and that, it's interesting how you um, talked about Valencia being a really fast and physical team because the, one of the first things I noticed that what Real Madrid did was the back line, especially those three center backs, sat so deep. And so there was so much space in front of them that Valencia could kind of settle down in midfield, play feet, but there was never any chance of them going to be in a foot race with uh, Helguera, Campo, any of those guys. So that was one of the first things I noticed is there were no balls in behind. So uh, they probably, I, I I didn't know if that was just like kind of the um, style Madrid had played all season or if that was just a tactic for the for the final that game. But it seems like judging by your uh, your um, description of the Valencia attack all season, it sounds like that was something that they had planned. Valencia had this resource and and. You- you, Eddie Lopez, goes against Barcelona. There's a, there's a bunch of YouTube videos that are fantastic. And it's pretty much Mendieta or Farinos or even, even a centre-back just hitting the ball <laughs> as hard as they can. 
and and Lopez. He was scary. How, how how that was probably another reason for for Del Bosque to play three at the back and have them so deep because that that was pretty much their weapon. And other than that, it was really tough for them to to do some build up uh, with with their their midfield. Yeah, that's one of the things that struck me too. Like I was so I'm always curious to see how these games hold up when you're older as opposed to when you watch them as a kid. Um, I remember just watching this and there was I felt a lot of tension and I was nervous about it. Um, obviously, when you watch it almost 20 years later, um, you know the outcome. I was kind of just surprised at how how disappointing Valencia were to me. I don't know. I I, I expected that this was tighter than it was, um, and. And then you go and look at the stats in this game. Um, Real Madrid had 11 shots on target. Valencia had one. And they didn't have as much of the ball. Um, their buildup wasn't great, like you said, Ed. And like some of those times, like there was even Mendieta himself, who was so great. Um, there were times where he just was clearing it. And I thought he had better options to kind of build the attack a little bit. Um, but I, I, I just said at the top of the show, I think like if you were to... You know, often the Roberto Carlos versus Marcelo debate comes up. And um, I think a lot of people feel Marcelo has overtaken it. But I, I got to tell you, when I watch Roberto Carlos, the more and more I watch him revisit yeah. him for this um, for this historical segment, the more I kind of lean towards, like, I don't know if it, there's a clear-cut winner. I, don't, I think it's closer than people think. I don't think there's maybe one clearly above the other. But this guy was, like, transcendent at times. Like, there was nobody that could comprehend or deal with him on that flank like Angloma could kind of keep up with him Mendieta had no chance Angulo had no chance Jukic <laughs> had no chance he would like have overhit touches but still catch up he would you know Mendieta would have a head start running and he would still catch up um and I think at There's one, one point, instance of that that mm. is, is just you laugh when you watch it yeah the tackle Mendieta right that has like 10 meters yeah <laughs> And it lasts for like two seconds. Yeah, <laughs> and he's already taking him over. So shortly after, I th- one of the things that caught my eye is that at one point, Roberto Carlos steals it from him, and Mendieta just looks at Roberto Carlos like he's just kind of dumbfounded at like this alien he has to play. He has no idea what to do because he's such a physical <laughs> freak. Um, it was really, it was. I think that was one of the highlights for me, apart from Redondo, who I thought was great in this game. Uh, I just, I love the way Roberto Carlos played. <laughs> Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast for a behind-the-scenes look at all the action of the show and more with your favorite competitors. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Kian, every every time I watch these historical matches that feature Roberto Carlos, I mean, I'm just you remember how good he was, and he's one of those guys we don't like. We're not romanticizing. Like he was, my God, what a player! He was just. Incredible, an athletic beast, just an athletic beast. Yeah. I also think, like, you know, part of the knock about Roberto Carlos is that he wasn't good defensively, right? I think I think part of the reason was because it was more that he was just not always in position to defend, more so that he was a weak defender. Like, individually, I think he can hold his own. He could recover well uh, and and steal the ball. He had that going for him, too. Like, I think maybe that part may have been overblown. Certainly, he wasn't Paolo Maldini or anything, but he was... Uh, I think he may have been a bit underrated in that aspect a little bit. Um, Ed, when you when you watch Raul play in this role, he was like essentially a central midfielder. He was playing so deep. What what did you think of this Raul performance? I mean, is is not the best uh, 
is not the, the the position that exploited his ability the, uh, abilities the best offensively, but defensively he was such a help for the midfield that um, in in terms of gaining balls back or tracking back it, it's just so dependable that you you learn to appreciate how transcendent he was even though he was not playing as a forward and uh, obviously the fact that he had the choice to kill the match off in a one on one is just uh, it's just fantastic uh, it's kind of like the gift or the price to, to to the to the sacrifice he put during most most of the match yeah it was kind um, of symbolic yeah yeah and that that season he played as a left. I think that was a season where he played so much as a left winger, and he still led the league in scoring. Yes. I don't know if it was that one, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and That's it's, one. It's yeah. interesting. You look at Raúl and McManaman. Uh, they both play so narrow. And McManaman wasn't playing as a winger in this game at all. Like he was mostly central. He was working defensively. He was kind of bringing the ball up the field. Um, and it was mostly Salgado and Roberto Carlos who provided the width. Um, and that's another one I think, you know, Salgado, I don't know if it was Kili Gonzalez was, was just terrible defensively or something, but Salgado would just walk past him anytime he wanted to. And uh, this was, this was so this was, to me, peak Salgado, peak Roberto Carlos, peak Redondo, yeah. peak Raul. And peak McManaman. Peak McManaman. Um, I think Helguera you could the, probably throw into that mix too. Yes, yes. Well, of course, <laughs> peak... Uh, Ivan Campo. <laughs> I've never seen Ivan Campo play this well, yeah. ever. <laughs> but going back to McManaman for a second, um, the idea of, of McManaman that most football fans have is, is the winger that was extremely fast and dribbled and uh, he could take on uh, a player once and again. But the McManaman that played for Real Madrid was a completely different player. He had just lost a step and... Uh, he kind of changed the way he played and became like an all-around midfielder offensively, uh, always a dependable pass when someone was under pressure with the ball. And uh, every once in a while, he would have this technical, this uh, moment of technical ability that you wouldn't believe. And so I, I really, really enjoyed watching him play, how he just supported everyone on the build-up. And... Uh, he scored a, a few goals with Real Madrid that were unbelievable. The one, the volley on on this final is, is yeah. just a, an an amazing moment of quick decision and and impeccable execution. I remember another one that he scored that Roberto Carlos had a cross over forty meters from left to right, and he just um, against Real Oviedo that one. He, he, yes, exactly. He got it first touch. It's just shocking goal. That so, I've um, never seen that anybody else use that technique. By the way, I don't think yep. I, I think it's a very rare and unique technique. It's like a scissor kick, but not yeah. to your back, but just just jumping. It's more of a kung jumping fu forwards. Um, I know in terms of like, um, and like tactical stuff, this game I think was interesting because of just some of the chaos it, it brought. But um, one of the other things I noticed that Morient is in this game also had to drop deep and kind of I think like by nature they almost had to do that because um, just to kind of bring some numbers to the midfield but Morientes I, I didn't really like love him in that role where he had to like drop deep and some of his touches were 
were clumsy and his passing wasn't great. Like compared to Raul, Raul was so neat and tidy yeah. with his touches in midfield, right? You know, but that that's not his role. And obviously, he scored. I think that one of the notes I had was in that the first goal that Real Madrid scored. Obviously, it was Anelka hold up play. Like he got fouled, and he was doing that often in this game. He got fouled. And I think what struck me about that free kick that Roberto Carlos did that led to the goal got had had to have been like from forty yards, I think. And yeah. there was no like now I think if you line that up, you have like a decoy, right? You have someone pretending that like he's gonna cross, someone pretending he's gonna shoot. It was just like clear that only Roberto Carlos was standing there. He was about to shoot a rifle. And uh and he that run up he was almost at half to start his run. It was like just really something to see that, you know, nobody else would have the audacity to shoot from there. Unless you're Ronaldo or something, but um, and it was almost on target before it got blocked. But I think Salgado's um, Salgado did really well to get that cross into Morientes for that first goal. Yes, yes, He's, it's it's a hustle to get to the ball first. That was that type of hustle was Salgado's trademark. Um, but you see that uh, when he was uh, good in terms of fitness. He wasn't bad technically either. I mean, he gets three or four balls that are crossed 20, 25 meters, and he just kills it first touch, Yeah, completely controlled. Um, things that you wouldn't associate with, with Salgado in terms of the type of player he was, and he was an extremely competent fullback. He even had that um, volley late in the second half from outside the box that yeah. rippled the back of the net. I mean, I, I didn't expect that from Salgado. And uh, But, Keon, back to a point you made on, on the Roberto Carlos free kick. The other thing, too, I was thinking about is Real Madrid were ripe for the counterattack if something went wrong with that free kick and if it just hit the wall and that wall disbanded and just went straight down the throat of Real Madrid, which, it om- which almost happened. Um but it's interesting to note on all three goals, every single goal that Real Madrid scored, um, the origin of the goal came from a set piece. So the first one was the Roberto Carlos free kick. The second one was a long throw-in that wasn't cleared properly by Valencia, and then McManaman um, hit that volley. And then the last one was actually a Valencia corner kick, which Real Madrid won one uh, one long ball out of the from the box, and Raul was in, and he had uh, all that time to just take the 1v1 and um, I think this game there was a lot of stop start and so the team that lost focus on those on those throw-ins on those free kick free kicks on the set pieces is the team that ultimately lost the game yep Ed, Ed I know you have to run super so I, I want to just give you some space to before you leave to if you wanted to share anything particular about this couple of couple of points what a terrible shirt <laughs> it's a baggy, no, you're huge, kidding. Just That's my favorite shirt. one. <laughs> Come on. Oh my god. Come on. It looks over everyone looks oversized. It does like it is they a bit baggy from their you're older right. brother. It's baggy. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah that's true. The the long sleeve <laughs> version of this is a bit tidier. It's a bit more slim fitting, which they wear all trapper. But the design itself was spectacular, Ed. Really? <laughs> I think it's just terrible. Oh my god. You're the, no <laughs> anyway, way. Um, okay. Another thing that that uh, that is really really good if you're a freak of Real Madrid, Sanchez playing as a as a midfielder. Mm. Um, we were mentioning his uh, yeah. Del Bosque started with three centre backs and then the substitutions are Savio, uh, Sanchez and Hierro. So with mm. another two centre backs, 
So he's playing five center backs. Not even Javier Clemente did this uh, ever. I, this is just mental. But Sanchez does very well. He's just like 10 minutes on the pitch. But he used to play as a, cent uh, as a central midfielder when, when he was in the youth teams. And the first season he played for Real Madrid on the on the on the Primera División team, uh, he played as a central midfielder, and he made three, four runs, and uh, got fouled in every single one of them. Two yellow cards. He looked like he wanted to score, mm. uh, and it's just an impressive performance. And and I remember distinctly that I was thinking. Man, this is really conservative. He's already win uh, leading 2-0 and he's taking five centre-backs. But then I saw Sanchez play and I was like, I forgot that Del Bosque coached Sanchez when he was in the youth teams and that he knew very well that Sanchez could do a, a pretty decent job uh, next to Redondo in the middle of, of the park. How much of the Del Bosque bringing Sanchez on though, do you think was sentimental? Because they, they, he felt like they oh, had already won the game and this may have been his last huge. game ever. Yes, he was 35. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's that was kind of uh, uh, the recognition of of a career in which he only played for Real Madrid. That's that was his only team for 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 the full time, full 15, 16 years he played. Yeah, yeah. he should have retired after that game, I think, because he came back and then only played five games the next year. That should have been his last yeah. game ever, if you ask me. Yeah, could have been could have been a great great way to say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm Spencer Hall. I'm Holly Anderson. I'm Ryan Nanny. I'm Jason Kirk. And we're the hosts of the Shutdown Fullcast, your Avengers of college football podcast. It says here in the script I'm to riff on what that means. And basically what I mean is it's all already spoiled. Every Tuesday, we talk about everything from cooking disasters to pro wrestling to unfashionable pants we wore in middle school. We also do talk about college football every now and then, like mascot fights, announcers fleeing the booth early, and unfashionable pants that coaches wear now. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it should be taken, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Um, very fitting. If it would have been perfect icing on the cake if Fierro had have scored that free kick or Sanchez had have scored, but um, either way, it was a, obviously a great result. Um, anything else? Only one more thing. Mm -hmm. Two two heroes of this uh, Champions League that are forever in our minds as Real Madrid fans: Karim B, awful player, uh, <laughs> but got a key goal that. He hit the ball like uh, no football player would ever do, and he scored uh, on the quarterfinals. And then the semifinals, it was Anelka who's, who headed home at Munich. And uh, we didn't have a very good track record playing against Bayern Munich. And this was like the first time in 20 years that we managed to to uh, outclass them in, in a, in a two-leg uh, competition. And from then, then it became more, more. Uh, I wouldn't say easier, but it, it became more. Uh, uh, we did it more often than, than before. So Karim Bey and Anelka, I mean, bizarre players if you take a look at their careers. But um, in for this Champions League, they were absolutely key. Wait, who was it that Carambo scored against? Because he didn't score in the quarterfinal. Because that was the Manchester United one, right? Um, was it before that? I'm gonna have to take to to look it up, okay. but now I'm curious because it was uh, 
because yeah, because the against Manchester United, all the it's goals Borussia. came in the second it's, leg. It was against Borussia. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I mean, in fact, if you if you Google Karim Bay Karim Bay goal, <laughs> it <laughs> goes totally straight to Borussia. <laughs> <laughs> Great! How oh, this that was the night that that the goal fell over. Uh, was it? Let me check. This is. This sounds like another no, that historical was, segment. I'm, I'm probably <laughs> mixing European Cups. Am I? Was this 98? You're going all the way back to 98, maybe? Uh, yes, 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 yes. This is my mistake. This was 98. Yeah. The, uh, the, then let's keep only Anelka as a hero for this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll bring forward the Carambo one to a future segment. Great. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Um, okay this was great okay thanks for joining Ed thanks Ed cheers take care thank you Matt all right Matt um, I I want to point out that Iker Casillas looked like he was 10 years old in this game (laughs) yeah Yeah. well and I I mean kind of just building off of uh, quickly on what Ed just said about Anelka what did you make of his uh, performance because I kind of felt like Anelka was the guy, he was really isolated from the rest of the team. Like, didn't really feel like he fit in. But once he got the ball, I felt like he was the one guy who could produce something out of nothing. Like, if something was going to happen and just kind of out of nowhere, especially early in the first, like the first half before anyone had scored, I felt like he was the guy who could maybe change the game. He was the hold-up guy to me. Like, he was the guy isolated for sure. Often and most often, the highest guy up the pitch would receive passes and just wait for teammates to arrive. And then on the odd chance he would... I mean, he, he was able to... He had a couple of nice dribbling sequences in the first half, which got him into the box. Um, but most of his shots seemed to come from pretty acute angles, right? Like the two big ones he had, yeah. um, one in the first half, one in the second half, were just too acute for, for Canizares to be troubled. But um, he also... He had that header in the first half, which was... He had... Three. He had another header like that. Uh, actually, throughout the season, I remember he had two headers identical to that. Whereas, like, uh, he can get so much power on the ball, and that's a tough one to put power on. I think because he was like almost not fading away, but like he was distant from the goal. He was almost at the top of the box. He generates so much power on the header. Kanizar um, saved it, but he had an identical like that one, like that against Bayern, and then one again. Barca earlier in the season where uh, it was saved just in the same manner. So like he, to me, he's just like uh, the hold up guy who could, who could take chances and, and create them. But um, I guess you, one of the most bizarre Real Madrid careers really, I think can think of. <laughs> yeah. So just bizarre career in general. Yeah. Uh, but also like had his moments, like with Chelsea, he was quite good. Obviously yeah. with Arsenal, he was quite good when we signed him. Yeah. Um, a weird blip at Real Madrid, but ultimately a, a blip I think most Real Madrid fans are thankful for by the end of it because I don't know if they get to the final without him. Yeah. Um, let's see. Roberto Carlos, we talked about. Is it? This is a question I wanted to uh, ask both you and Ed, and because I just I thought he was great, um, Helguera. Is it fair to say that Helguera is one of the maybe most underrated players in Real Madrid history. I mean... In the past 20 had, years, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had a crunching scissor tackle that kind of set the tone in the second half. 
and basically sent a message to the whole Valencia team saying no one's getting through. And I just thought he was so good uh, in the whole game. And then we watched previous historical segments where he's in center midfield and looked good. And like he's just been uh, – he was even part of that 2006 team that made the incredible comeback. And initially, Capello wanted him ousted from the squad, didn't give him a squad number, took away his number six squad number. He had number 21. And then he somehow made his way back into the starting lineup and was crucial. And I just feel like he's a really, really underrated player. He was immense in this game. Like some of his challenges were incredible. Um, his position was incredible. He, you know, kind of playing that sweeping role. He he was also very good at organizing and and kind of marshalling that back line. Uh, this was, apart from him playing really well like, alongside McLeary in central midfield, I, I would argue this is his best role because... Yeah. Some of his best performances in Real Madrid came in in a role like this, where Del Bosque, his way of masking the fact that they had no good defenders really, was to just put all of them on the field and and defend. Because I remember even when Zidane came along, there there was a performance in the Camp Nou in the Champions League semifinals where he had this a sim- similar thing when Zidane was there. I think it was Zidane. Uh, Solari was there in midfield. Raul was there. Figo, I don't know if Figo was in that game, but the defense was essentially Helguera and then and then a five man backline, and he was immense in that game as well. And Barcelona had waves of attacks, and they would just they would just ping everything away. And so, yeah, I would definitely agree that he's underrated. I think he, ultimately, when he transitioned full time in a, in a center back in a two man center back, is when when kind of we lost him as as the. In terms of like his skill set, his where it was it should have been used in a different role. I think. What and I mean, this was my question: is what was Yero's role this year? Because I was surprised that he wasn't a starter. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he will, he had injuries that year. Oh, okay. I All believe right. um, because I now this is this is not me researching. This is just remembering me as a kid because I yeah. I think he had uh, injury concerns because he no way he would have. Otherwise, he would have started over um, Campo or Karenka. There's no question. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. he was. Just, I think he had injury concerns. He wasn't 100 percent fit. I laughed at, and I think it's so funny that Ed basically said this was Ivan Campo's best performance ever <laughs> because I uh, the, what I remember of Ivan Campo is just like when he was at his like last years at like Bolton, he was kind of heavy yeah. set and like didn't really. And so he was uh, clumsy. Yeah, and but he was—I mean—he had played really, really well. He was a high ceiling, low floor type defender, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talked about Raúl. Talked about Morian. Just talked about like, man and man. Our boy Mauricio Pellegrino in, in the Valencia back line had a couple nice challenges. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second half was just was pretty fun because it was just um, essentially. Real Madrid dispossessing players, particularly Redondo, and then and Valencia outnumbered on the counterattack. It was just kind of that all game and uh, all the second half. And I, I think Roberto Redondo deserves a shout out here because um, apart from Roberto Carlos, he was the standout for me in the sense that I just this was uh, this was obviously this is actually if you think about it de facto like his last good game ever in in his in his uh, career because after this he got injured and was sold he was sold and then injured that was the order um to milan and um 
but this was still very much his peak. Like some of his touches, his shoulder feints, like he would not settle for an easy pass. He would just get out of a tighter spot to get a vertical pass in. Um, his The way he dispossessed players, the way he carried the ball up the pitch, just an insanely fun player. Yeah, and I think in addition to Redondo, I thought Roberto Carlos and Raul, who obviously we talked about already, but I thought those guys were up there as well. And I mean, this was, I agree with you, this was peak Raul and his... Uh, he had some like really in- nice, just beautiful technical skills doing L turns and yeah. uh, just rolling on the ball in the middle of the pitch and getting through, driving through the midfield. And that finish, I mean, that finish is not easy. On um, especially one, he's it feels like he's got an eternity. He's dribbling into a cow's field, about to go one v one with Canizares, who in it in himself is a great goalkeeper. Um, beats him, but one, once he beats Canizares. Uh, I forget who was the defender. I can't remember which Valencia defender it was that he came almost close. made it. Yeah, it, like Raul, it, it, Raul had kind of made his angle tight, and that defender was right on the line. It, the ball just barely missed him, so that was and it was on his right foot. I was very yeah. worried that that wasn't going to go in, and then he squeezed it through barely. Yeah, yeah, um, but that was that definitely was a fitting ending to this entire thing. So uh, we should also preface this by saying like. Honestly, go back. This Real Madrid was terrible this year, in that year. Uh, they they were completely terrible in La Liga. They came fifth. They wouldn't have qualified for the Champions League the year after if had they not won this game. Um, they had an insane springtime run, a classic run in the spring. This is like classic Zidane era. <laughs> the team, when the Champions League knockout phase hit, they just went to this whole other gear. They they were the first team ever to defeat the finalists from the previous year uh, and knock them out. So they beat Manchester United, obviously, in the quarterfinals. Semifinals, they beat Bayern, who were the two finalists from the year before. Then they won the final in the first ever final where two teams from the same country meet in the final. And um, they just went to a gear. The only other memorable game they had this entire season from a domestic standpoint was this was also the Raul Shush celebration in the Camp Nou. Um, where they tied two two and he scores at the end in a, in one of the wildest classicals ever. That should be right, that yeah. should be one of the games we do watch eventually. But um, yeah, this was not a good team, but to me, uh, a, a collection of individually brilliant legends all at their peak that carried them when it mattered is how I view it. That sounds so familiar. And yeah. this game kind of had. Uh... Like by the end of it, the second half when it was kind of done and dusted, it kind of felt you kind of had that feeling you did when um, Real Madrid were up versus Juventus in the Champions League final, and you're kind of in cruise control and could just enjoy the final, and that's kind of how it felt with this one as well. So, what happens if you put this team in a time machine and put them in, I don't know, in last year's Champions League final against Liverpool? Well, if they. Actually, I mean, you think about how deep they sat. Because um, I was going to say, if they allow everyone that amount of space in between the lines, especially in the midfield, everyone's just going to drive at them and take them on 1v1. But, I mean, no, again, no one, Mane, Salah, they're not going to be making runs in behind because there's no space. So, um, and Liverpool really don't have the, they would need more technicians in midfield to be able to kind of um, dribble utilize that space that they have and dribble at the back line and find the right pass. So it may be closer than we think. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 
I don't know. It, it it's tough. It's tough. I mean, you've like you said, you've got collection of individuals that no matter the time era, uh, Raul, Roberto Carlos, Redondo. I mean, these guys they can get it done, but yeah, um, it's just tactically how would they fare is is another question. Yeah, though I would trust those guys to hold up and have a big game. I think the game plan would have to be. You essentially have to break Liverpool's press and then and then rely on Roberto Carlos and Redon and McManaman to bring the ball carry the ball forward on the counterattack and feed Morientes and Anelka. And I would maybe think about benching Morientes for I don't know if there was any who was on the bench. Maybe you put Savio. in Savio still yeah. really the only one I would think I could think of just to provide an extra midfield presence and uh <clears throat> And also a good offensive player who could who could help with the counterattack, but I guess it's possible. I think I would rely a lot on Roberto Carlos because yeah. he's have a player that could potentially keep uh, both Alexander Arnold and Salah in check, or think they could think think twice about getting forward or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it would be tough. I honestly, that was my takeaway from this. I thought it was a mess. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. It was a. It was a mess in the sense that. I think if Valencia were a better passing team, they would have exploited Real Madrid. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, the whole game just couldn't get over the amount of space each team had. It was, yeah. even on the ball, I mean, even on the ball, they just had so much time and so much space to dribble to do what they wanted. It was just crazy. Having said that, I mean, they they literally were incredible against Manchester United, who were, at the time, like almost the the Liverpool of the time. Um Possibly better. Like that was a very historic Manchester United team with like Beckham in his prime, Giggs and Keane, Scholes all in their prime. So I don't know who who am I to say they they wouldn't be able to beat um, Liverpool in the final. Like, they, maybe they could if they beat that Manchester United team. It's funny when I was writing my Raúl piece yesterday, um, one of the interviews I came across with he was doing with the Guardian in two thousand, I believe it was two thousand eleven. He was talking about his the best moments against Manchester United, and he said, um, obviously, he brought up the Redondo, Tagonazo, and the fact that they won three uh, two, and when no one believed they could, he said that if that game wore on for like five more minutes, he he doesn't think they would have advanced because mm. it was it was three 0 for them, and then it was three two, and Manchester United had a bunch of momentum, and he's like, we were just holding on. If that game had gone for five more minutes, you know, he he didn't like their chances, so. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, anything else from this game? No, I think I think we pretty much covered everything. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Um, well, Matt, this was great. Um, and uh, you and I will be back Tuesday at the latest. So we'll, uh, we'll chat then. Uh, thanks so much. Hala Marid. Hala Marid. Quick break to give some patron shout-outs before we get into part two, our mailbag with Lucas. Um, patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you go to pledge get access to bonus shows our loan tracker on Tuesday mornings which we um, take great joy and we review all the players on loan from the weekend and update you on how they did in detail and uh, other bonus shows that will be plenty this season and other rewards so patreon.com slash managing Madrid go join the army shout out to these $10 plus patrons who um, if you pledge $10 or more you get a specific shout out on the podcast so Shout out and thank you to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rantakiro, Pascal Said, Leon Stavernakis, Bjorn Salvador, 
Christian Gonzalez, Essa Hariri, Ilian Zacco, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Saad Omar, Oluwapamimo Oladunjoy, Patrick Odayafadi, Christian Toft, Dan Berthy, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilikar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Pena Maridista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brennan Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Zorn Bosnchic, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Somanshu Singh, Brennan Powers, Rovi Tariev, Amy L., Anthony Armesto, Shabaz Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, Jack Edgar, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, Daniel Pinkney, Magnus Lext, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, and Solomon Ortiz, and Philip Hammer, who has just joined the army. Thank you so much, guys. You guys are freaking awesome. And on to part two with Lucas Navarrete and myself. All right, welcome to part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. It is your weekly mailbag with myself and Lucas Navarrete, um, which is uh, a weekly thing now. Um, this is the third week running, I believe. Lucas, how you doing? Hey, Kian, thanks for having me. I'm enjoying those. I am too, and people are as well. Um, international break. It kind of sucks. It sucks, but also, don't you think it's also a, like a good time because the clubs regroup, yeah, regroup after the couple of bad results, and then also we have injuries, right? This give despises yeah. a little time. Yeah. What's the update on the injuries? What do we we have? Hazard coming back? You think we'll be back in time? Yeah, I think he'll be back in time for Levante, just like Brahim and Rodrigo. Even though Rodrigo will probably spend some time with Castilla before before being involved with the first team. But I, uh, I'm optimistic with Hazard. I think he'll be back for for Levante, even though maybe he, he'll be for only like 20 or 30 minutes just to be careful and you yeah. know, to have him yeah. completely ready for, for the tough games ahead. Okay, so we have a bunch of questions we want to go through. And uh, we're going to start with um, our patron, Casper Moscala. Casper says, Wasn't the Ramos blunder against Villarreal actually a sign of two things? One, Mendy's Mendy playing his first game in our bad positioning in midfield um, with all the pains of Casemiro playing as an attacking midfielder. If you look at Ramos's mistake, it's not really that much his. Um, he wants to pass to Mendy to the left, but Mendy runs too fast, too far. Just as he's about to hit the ball, this avenue is blocked by the midfielder. Ramos blunders, and then another Villarreal player runs from behind, Kroos, and steals the ball. I kind of agree with the second part of it. Like... The bad positioning in the midfield and, you know, the lack of a playmaker in that part, a deep playmaker, if you like. But not much about, you know, Mendy playing his first game. First of all, I think Mendy was excellent in this game. Mm -hmm. And even though you kind of understand that he might not be used to this Ramos's style of play or where Ramos wants his teammates to be and all that, I mean... You get that it's it's pretty reasonable in my opinion, but I I first of all I think it was a Ramos mistake 100%, but maybe one which might not happen if you have a, a deep playmaker there. I watched it a few times over yeah. and over again, and no matter how I twisted how I look at it, 
I don't. Mendy has no fault in this. Nah, Mendy, no. No, man, like even if you look at that passing lane, first of all, Ramos could have passed it earlier, um, and he still, yeah. even at the time he goes dispossessed, he could have, he could have still had that angle. But I think, above all, and, and you know, Oman and I talked about this a little bit after the game that you're even if there's a scenario where you have nothing, you have no outlets, no, no one to show for, isn't this essentially all you have to do is just kick it out of bounds or kick it up the field? This yeah. is like fundamental exactly. stuff, right? Um, yeah, like Odriozola um, against Celta, it's the same. Yeah, exactly. He it's same, same, exactly the same thing. Situation where he could have, you could have just kicked it out. Um, I, it's a bit. It was a bit of a surprising mistake from Ramos. Um, and well, uh, not really. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fairly common during a season this mistake uh, from Ramos. You know, kind of trying too hard, uh, making a play when it's probably not what he should be doing. So. I mean, yeah. Even though he's obviously a great defender and he makes plays from the defensive side of the of the field, which is obviously not easy. But you kind of get a couple of these throughout an entire season, which obviously it's reasonable in a sixty-game season. That's true. Um, I mean, I, I big game Ramos probably doesn't make a mistake like this, but exactly. over, over the course of a season, he does have several brain farts. One of them being stuff like this, the other being losing his head or or committing a bad challenge. Um, yeah, remember the league against uh, the the league with Ancelotti in the first season when you know Madrid had an advantage to to win it and ended up kind of giving up strange games against Valladolid and Celta. I remember some big mistakes from Ramos in, in, in that last part of, of the 2013-14 season. As far as I remember, even Ramos last season had these moments where, like, red cards, like when, they, when the team, like, absolutely can't afford to lose a player on the pitch at that yeah. time, you know, it, hap- it happens a lot with him. Um, yeah. Brennan Powers says, was Zidane using three different, different lineups? What would... What lineup would you use for the next game? Well, first of all, we need to remember that Bale will be suspended because of the red card he saw in Villarreal. Which and I believe then, the club tried to appeal, but they they were unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah unsuccessful. It'll be a one-game suspension. So, I mean, not the worst of the outcomes. And then we we need to you know to to see if. Bay, uh, if James and, and Isco are, are ready to come back, Hazard also. Assuming all three of them come back, including Brahim as well, I'd like to see Vinicius on, uh, on the right again, with and this time with Hazard and Benzema up front. I'd like to to see that trio playing again. And, um, well, actually make it their official debut in, in, in La Liga, yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, Rodrigo. I don't think it it gets to playing Rodrigo, nah, but he is so. he is back. He's also another one. So it is. Uh, everyone seems to be coming back at the same time, which is, I guess, I mean, ideally you'd like to have Bale, but the timing works maybe out. Maybe not Isco. What? Maybe not Isco. Yeah, I think he hasn't trained with the squad yet. I'm I'm not too optimistic with him. I uh, I do like I'm I'm glad we have an international break. Really, now the more I think about it, because if if the scenario was that the game against Levante was this weekend, like in two days, oh, yeah. then it makes it more difficult for Zidane to risk someone like James uh, yeah. or Hazard, right? Um, this way, and and in which case we would probably see something like Lucas Vasquez and maybe Vinicius on the left, because Vasquez goes on the right with the with yeah. a little bit more time for these people to come back. You you could. I could more realistically see James and Hazard in the lineup, or at least Hazard, or at least James of Hazard needs some time off the bench. Yeah. 
Um, also, maybe mm. maybe we get to see Militao, considering that both Ramos and Baran might be tired after the two FIFA games. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a good opportunity for Militao to to get some minutes, considering that he's not a starter for Brazil. Um, the only thing about that is that I don't, I mean I don't I haven't looked at Brazil's schedule, but there seems when with South American players. There is a little bit of extra fatigue, isn't there? Because you have to travel so far. Yeah, the travel, yeah. Because um, I was thinking about Fede Valverde giving like you know Modric a rest or whatever, but there is there is always that that that's why Barca seemed to be over the years a tiny bit vulnerable. Yeah. After the international break, because like their entire attack was South American. Yeah, makes sense, but I mean that would be if a player you know gets plenty of minutes. I mean, Militao should pretty much stay on the bench for those two games and even though you know obviously traveling and the jet lag and all that gets that increases your fatigue i mean yeah. i think should be, should be fairly ready um it might make a case though for uh for casimir to get some rest when he comes back though possibly yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well you might maybe maybe there's like a valverde cruz motor something happens something brews there if casimiro wants gets some extra time after the international break i don't know just who, who knows um, Marcelo, I don't, I don't know what's the latest with him, but as far as I know, he still has, he's still not being called up to Brazil, is he, or is he back with the national no, team? He's not. He's yeah. not I don't. So if if he stays in Madrid during this whole time, then he could easily start next game too. Yeah, I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Dixon says, "I get the Maridisa pessimism, but man, we haven't lost. We've dominated the three games at times, and are missing our most expensive signing to injury. Can we relax a little?" Thanks for the good work and cheers, guys. Are you relaxed? No, not really. Not really. These last two games have been tough, uh, especially the one in, in, against Valladolid. The one in Villarreal was could have been, should have been better, but I kind of understand that uh, that kind of game. It's true that the second half was much much better from from Madrid. But the one in Valladolid is the one that gets me very, very worried, especially considering that you know the players kind of made a statement in the in the opening game against Celta, and it was such a big letdown to let those two points go away at home against you know with all due respect a mediocre team that you know I'm kind of worried about Madrid's chances in La Liga this year. I from I, what yeah from what yeah from what I've observed, what I've observed. there's like just kind of dealing with um or I I just seeing comments and the and how Marilisa's reacting to it. There's two different kinds of reactions to the season so far. One is the the faction that you know are saying just chill. It's it's so early. Zidane has won us this. You know we have great players. It we. We were unlucky against Vidali. We were unlucky against Villarreal. If it wasn't yeah. for Ramos's mistake, we would have won. If it if it wasn't for I don't know this player missing that, we would have won. It's not Zidane's fault. Ramos made a mistake. Yeah. Blah, blah blah. And then there's the, there's the opposite extreme, which is um, everything. We're, we're we're just this is a disaster. I'm kind of in between, if I'm being honest, and I don't really, I I, I don't really. I don't know. I guess you're more than welcome to believe what you want to believe, and I'm, that's fine with me. But I'm kind of in between in the sense that I would be more relaxed if I if this was just a small hiccup along the way. It doesn't. We have way larger sample size to, and I and I do believe there is room for genuine concern. And I think exactly. And it's like if okay, if your argument is if Ramos didn't make that mistake, okay, so 
but then that's acting like Real Madrid had created enough chances to score like three, five goals. If exactly. you look at the XG in this game, it was neck and neck. So it's not like, oh. you know, you you know where I'm going with this, right? I think there is like somewhere yeah, in yeah, between. There's like this, there's this view that I think where I am, where it's like it might get better, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't. Yeah, the thing is. Everyone keeps saying that if it weren't for those small mistakes, Real Madrid should have won, deserved to win and everything. But Real Madrid has made those mistakes for the last year and a half, probably. So yeah, it's tough to believe that those small mistakes will, will go away you know, that easily. You know. Yeah. I, I also believe that football should be played a way that one mistake shouldn't be the cause of your demise. I think... If you're if you're making ten mistakes and you lose, I get it. If you're making one mistake and you're not, and you're not winning, then that means you're not creating enough to mask a mistake. So because yeah, mistakes exactly. in football are it's part of football. Like mistakes are going to happen. Exactly. So how are you going to yeah. overcome those mistakes? You, right now, I just I I don't blame you if you're worried. Uh, Frederick Rantakiro says, I don't understand some of the loan deals we're making. Why is it such a hurry to develop players at the highest level possible when there is a high risk that the players don't get playing time at all? In most cases, would it not be better to take it step by step? Like, if a player performs in Castilla, then you loan him out to a Segunda team for a season. And if he performs in a Segunda, you loan him out to a Primera team. For example, I thought it was crazy to loan Mayoral out to Wolfsburg, and he hasn't recovered yet from that loan spell. And it's so frustrating seeing Lunin sitting on the bench again this season. I mean, wouldn't it be better if he... If last season he was loaned out to a team in a lower tier where he would be guaranteed starter instead of wasting a year on the bench for a La Liga team, I see. I, I see his point. I actually kind of agree with it in in the sense that obviously for Lunin it doesn't make any kind of sense to spend last season in Leganes not playing at all. Things aren't promising for him in in Valladolid so far. And but about Mayoral, for example, he uses the example of Mayoral, and I just think probably Mayoral just wasn't and will never be good enough to play for a team like Wolfsburg. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. He's decent for Levante, okay, but that's the kind of level he he can reach. And Real Madrid were hoping for for something better from him, and he just never reached that kind of potential he showed with the juvenil. So. But yeah. of course, if you if you talk to me about about Lunin, that it's hard to 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 reason against against that kind of of point because it just doesn't make any sense to to loan him if you don't get any kind of guarantee that he will get the minutes he needs. Well, yeah, with Mayoral, when when he went to Wolfsburg during that whole year, um, I was disappointed, obviously, that he didn't play, and then I I said to myself, well. That was a disaster, but maybe if he goes somewhere else, um, he may get playing time and he may just get back on track to where his trajectory was during Castilla, where he was really good and more promising than Mariano, by the way, at the time, I thought. Um, Yeah, definitely. But then over time, you just just watch him because now he's had plenty of opportunities and now you just realize he's not good enough. So there's that. Uh, If he was good enough, he would overcome it. Like I don't... uh, Ultimately, talent and hard work will get you... To where you need yeah. to be, I think, despite relapses yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, but Lunin, I agree with you. Lunin, um, it's bizarre to me that we looked at and 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 I imagine when you loan players out, you have conversations with the team. Obviously, you're loaning them out to. At uh, Leganes, there was Cuellar, who was who had one of the better performances of any La Liga goalkeeper relative to their team 
uh, last season. And then Valladolid has Masip, who also was in that category of like really good performances all throughout the year. So, and and by the way, these player, these teams that are loaning them, getting the loan player, they have no really vested interest to develop that player because they know they're not getting yeah. him back. So, yeah, I agree with this point. Like with Lunin, we had another scenario which, um, if he was going to be a backup, wouldn't it better just to be to be Courtois backup I mean maybe the club thought that was risky maybe they didn't know whether Kaler was leaving or not I guess there's that yeah yeah, that's uh, that's the main thing I think but isn't there like a a team where he can just go start I'm sure there is yeah yeah and and the thing is also that goalkeepers in Spain if you look at it I believe that they are you know, chemistry is really important in in inside the dressing room, and players like uh, like Cuellar and and Masip, I look at them and, and see those kinds of uh, leaders in the in the dressing room, and it's not easy to bench them. I mean, you know, they they've been there for for a while. They are experienced goalkeepers in Spanish football. Most of the team knows them for for quite some years, so it's not it's not easy to to bench them in favor of uh, of a player on loan who just got to the Spanish league, in my opinion. Um, question from Josie De Santos. He says, where do you think Kaler ranks in terms of our all-time goalkeepers? Are we talking quality, legacy? Uh... It's, tough to, it's tough to answer. If, we, if we're talking about quality, I, I don't think he's one of the greatest. Let's start with quality. quality. Yeah, well, in terms of quality, he definitely... Mm-hmm. Maybe top ten all time, top five, top five. I'm not so sure, but he 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 basically won the the three Champions League titles. But he wasn't as brilliant as the as the best in the history of the club. I don't think. Well, that's for sure. But I I guess like he is also he wins in the sense that he was part of a a magical era that exactly um you know that augments his legacy. Obviously, um I was. I was looking at the club's greatest goalkeepers. I think, I actually think if you if you rank him by quality, somehow it's better for him than ranking him by legacy. Because if you rank him by legacy, I know that sounds weird to say, but like, for example, someone like Ricardo Zamora, who is regarded as one of the best goalkeepers in the yeah. club history, played in the thirties. There's no way I'm going to put him over no, Taylor. No, no. I have no idea what this guy what this guy was facing in the thirties. Was he was he facing yeah, anything? It's that right? comparison only is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Iker is number one. Um, I think Paco Buyo is easily above Kaler to me. I like Bolo Ilner too. Ilner was really good. Um, I now I'd imagine if you pulled like every Madridista on earth who knew both, I think Kaler would win the popularity contest. There's no question. Um, yeah, probably. But but you know he has to be mentioned, and then um, and then you have also. Um, the goalkeeper who played in the Yeya era, which was Miguel Angel Suarez, who was there for you know over a do- over a dozen, almost twenty years actually, and he won a Champions League title or a European title, as it was called then. Um, he won multiple La Ligas, so like he's there. But I guess in terms of legacy, I think, and if you combine everything legacy quality, he's probably somewhere between five and ten. Yeah, if you think about it, I don't think Real Madrid is a club of you know, great historic goalkeepers other than Casillas. Probably. No, that's the thing. That's what gets yeah. him in. 
The other one to yeah. mention is Juan Alonso, who was part of the De Ste- He was the goalkeeper during the De Stefano era, and obviously, by and won a million titles with him too. So, yeah, but you you see teams like Bayern Munich getting Kahn, getting Neuer, and you know those world class goalkeepers. And you know the only world class goalkeeper I can think of in Madrid is definitely Casillas. I don't think Keylor at his prime was you know a top three goalkeeper in the world. I don't think top three. He was never no no no, no. definitely not. Um, where are we? Okay, so question from Varun. He says, "I seriously think our much-famed and legendary trio of Modric, Casemiro, and Kroos has one last season of brilliance together." It looks like many fans don't buy into this idea of mine. From what I w- what we have seen this season, it this trio looks like they are reaching their magic again. My dear MM experts, please throw some light into this and let me know: Can this trio produce magic again? And with the help of other players, can we finally achieve our treble this season? I actually believe we can win the treble this season. Whoa, optimistic, Varun. I'm very uh, worried, Varun. Please just keep... I, I don't want you to get disappointed. Very worried. <laughs> Lower your expectations a little bit. Well, I'm I, I'm definitely worried about the midfield. Of course, they have the quality to turn it around, even though Modric will not get any younger. But there are still three world-class midfielders, but I, I I'm not sure why. But I just think that other teams might be ready and prepared to, you know, to do the things that gets all three of them uncomfortable and, you know, prepare for for playing against Madrid. So I, I, I'm just not sure. Of course, they are all three three quality midfielders. They've done great seasons. They they were key parts of, of Madrid's uh, three-peat in the Champions League. But uh, as I said last week, I think Madrid needed something else to go further further midfield. I kind of want to read another question that ties into this a little bit, and then yeah. we can tackle both. So, Humayun Kabir Sumon says, should we be worried about Varane? After Pepe left, he was supposed to be our main man along with Ramos in the defense. But so far, he's been inconsistent with his performance. How about Zidane benches him for Militao and see how he does? I just want to point out that if there was a way to erase World Cup 2000, <laughs> uh, was it 18? 18, yeah. 18. Erase it from the history books. That's when everything everything changed. So wrong, yeah. Everyone that went into that tournament in their peak, Modric, Varane, Kroos, I don't know who else, Casemiro maybe you could throw into that. Um, although Casemiro's still really young. Like, Marcelo, they just they were not the same after that. I don't know what happened, if there was something there in the water or, or what it was. But I will say about like Varane, I actually think I think the criticism of Varane is like insanely harsh. I, I completely agree. Yeah. I was thinking the exact same when I read the question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the part most the main reason why is because he's literally he's, exposed. he's so yeah. exposed. No other defender has to do what he does. He has no. the, to me he has like one of the toughest assignments in football and that's essentially yeah. defending things on his own. Not, not even Ramos. Oh, hold on. I, I mean, it's not a matter of Real Madrid center back. He's Varane the ones who holds the team together, in my opinion, defensively. He is Ramos is more not. out of position too. Than, yeah, and Varane has def- to mop it up. Definitely, Varane has to clean up everyone's mistakes. And even though, of course, I agree that he's not the you know that brilliant jaw dropping player we saw in the in Mourinho's third year. You know, after that knee injury, he kind of dropped a little bit. He wasn't. He he's not as physical as he was. But I, I still think he's what holds these teams' defense together. 
Uh, Ramos is out of position many times. Obviously, he, he Baran also is the last man standing behind Marcelo, Ramos, Carvajal, Casemiro, Cross, and Modric. It's just come on. He, he's exposed like 90% of the game. That the goal, the Villarreal goal, was isn't that like the prototypical example you should show when you talk about Varane's issues? Because when Ramos gives the ball away, he has to cover two people, yeah. and he has a choice between going marking one player or the other, and he's screwed almost either way. Like he can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's almost exactly. he's helpless in that situation. Like and then yeah. I hope and and I don't know. I don't think that particular goal anyone blamed Varane, but. People will come out of situations like that thinking Varan Varan is finished, and it's not it's not fair to him. I think so. I think the the answer to this question is always like, how can we improve our system and our scheme rather than how do we upgrade Varan? Because I don't think you just upgrade Varan with many players. No, 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 and and that's exactly what you said. It's it's a matter of you know improving the tactics and the formation and you know the the cohesion of the team so that Varan is not as exposed as often as he is now. He also like with. With Ramos being so out of position, like you said, at times he has to cover for both wing backs. So sometimes he has to come over yeah. to defend himself, defend behind Marcelo, or other times he's behind Carvajal. So like he's yeah. he's completely alone, and Casemiro again is not in that role to cover. He's like up the pitch somewhere. So that yeah. leaves you. There were so many times in that Villarreal game, and it was it was Ramos, Varane, and Cruz, if that defending, and nobody else. Yeah. Um. I think we'll take one more, Lucas. Um, okay. This one is from Ben Matheson. He says, do you guys think with what happened after Bale, James, and really all around Europe with players on huge contracts, um, will, this deter, will this deter Real Madrid in the future from giving players big money or from renewing players so often, knowing it doesn't work out and there is basically nowhere the player can go? It's a very interesting question because I do think that Real Madrid needs to change the way their, you know, the escala salarial, they call it. I really don't know how to translate that. It's like, you know, a salary ladder in a, in a literal sense, which is that the top players get around 20 million. There's a second tier of 10, 12 million. And then there's a third tier of five, four. So, I mean, pretty much every other club in a big club in Europe is pegging way bigger uh, salaries than than those Real Madrid are playing right now. And that's the main reason why Real Madrid m- might not be able to get, you know, the Galacticos they're trying to get. Um, in terms of the mistakes of, of giving Bale and James those kind of questionable extensions, I just think that this is something Real Madrid might need to do more often than in the next few years if they really want to to find those those stars in the market because I mean no player is going to leave let's say a big club like PSG where Mbappé might get 30 million if he signs if he agrees to an extension he, he he's not going to walk out of that contract to to sign for 15 million in, in for Real Madrid I don't think so it, it, it might be tough, but it's, it's the way the market is going at the moment, I think. Yeah, it's the way the market is going. and I So I think there's there's obviously this delicate balance of, A, you don't want to lose your superstar, so you have to overpay him so no one else nabs him up. Yeah. Or B, you you risk losing him. Um, as, when they get older, it's a bit more tricky, right? And I think Florentino generally has been good about not overpaying older players. 
um, yeah, and giving them those contract extensions that they want at the end of their careers. Yeah, don't you see this in the NBA a lot, Lucas? Like some of the contracts that are given to older players yeah, that well, are just Paul. a nightmare. Yeah, Chris Paul is yeah. one. John Wall is a is a nightmare one, but I guess that's different. He got injured, and it's just a nightmare now. Yeah. Um, yeah. In some ways, Real Madrid are lucky. It's not like anything disastrous like Alexis Sanchez. Like Bale, at least you can use at this point. <laughs> yeah. No, in my opinion also, um, but Real Madrid have a, a bit of a problem here with, uh, with you know, their their big players like, you know, Laporte is earning probably five or six million more than Baran at the moment. Mm. That's questionable, and Baran has every right to, to, to go to Florentino and say, come on, well, what's happening here? Because Baran is obviously a better player than, than Laporte at the moment, and he's, he deserves that kind of money. And the same kind of goes for, for Cross. We see other midfielders in Europe earning more than Cross. Probably we saw it with Modric last season when he kind of pushed for a new deal, even though, you know, that's not what he probably likes to hear but it's what happened anyway and it's just it's just tough for madrid to to accept that new market but they'll have to do it because you know baran is not going to accept earning 10 million when other colleagues from in in european football are earning twice so yeah yeah and some of this is also sometimes the 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 conflicting i guess views of the coach and president can also change things right so like if if Ancelotti was still around hypothetically, that James contract becomes less problematic, right? Yeah, definitely. Like so, there's also that. Like it depends on like if the if the board and the coach are in sync. Um, the James probably is one of the most played people we've had in the past few years. I assume I could be wrong about about that, but all signs point to to him being more involved in the team if if Ancelotti yeah. is still around. Yeah, definitely, and that's why I think you know the the kind of power a manager in England has is very useful because, you know, he gives, he decides transfers, he decides contracts. And I, you know, it doesn't make any sense if Madrid decides to pay 100 million for a player and then that player is not on next coach's plans for for the season. Imagine if Zidane walks away this season because, you know, things don't go well or whatever. And, you know, the next coach just thinks, Hazard is not as valuable as Real Madrid decided he was. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's all of that. Um, I mean, this, this is a discussion. I'm about to drop the sporting director bomb. I like the sporting director changes a lot of that, but I don't really want to get into that now because I think we've talked about it so much in the past couple of years that people are sick of it. But um, that's essentially what a munchie prevents is like the he makes sure the coaches coming in are buying into what the yeah. club exactly want to do um it's a deeper debate but um well i i i must say that it's true that the the board other than pogba the board kind of did everything Zidane wanted them to do yeah, other than they pogba, did. I, they I did. yeah they got ceballos away even though ceballos everyone in spain knows ceballos would be useful in real madrid's current roster but Zidane didn't want him here and he they sent him alone so I think he's pretty much decided. He's pretty much decided everything Real Madrid did this summer, other than Pogba. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. There was like this myth floating around that the club didn't let Zidane build anything because, um, and really, I think it was just because of the Pogba thing. But it's not like they they tried everything they could have. Like, it's, there's nothing. I don't know what else you want them to do. Like, they couldn't get rid of Bale. They couldn't. They couldn't get Pogba. And that's yeah. it. So, like, what do you want them to do? So, 
um all right lucas this was fun always is um we'll be back next thursday for sure and uh for everyone listening thank you thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the show and hala madrid thank you guys hala madrid